Oh, I didn't get the fade out this time. Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of, uh, oh gosh, I have to start this over. It's still playing in the background. There we go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Guide to the Grind. My name is Jeff Eady. Joining me today is always the, the well, the moon to my stars, Mr. Jonathan Tilger, one of Canada's top mortgage brokers. How are you today, Jonathan? I am phenomenal, Jeff. Always, always a blast being on here. And of course, we've got our wonderful guest coming back for a repeat visit. So, uh, so great to have great. I, I will show your thunder in the intro, but uh, yeah, a wonderful <laughs> guest again. So very excited about this. I have so many little things going on here that it's it's challenging to run the technology and do the intro and all of that without uh, messing it up. But we're getting there. You know, practice makes perfect. And uh, I will say I have a cat in the background that doesn't seem to be doing so good so if you hear a meow i do apologize normally that's not the way but all that being said we're super excited to have back one of our favorite guests somebody that we uh, have talked to many times since he's a principal at van west partners a denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the united states van west has established a track record with over 195 million in real estate assets uh he and his partners are success driven by a commitment to the you know what i'm just going to say it's jacob vanderseiss Jacob Vanderslice from Van West Partners. Jacob, how are you today? Jeff, great to be back. And I, I told you to shrink up that intro before we started uh, going live I, here. I uh, didn't have yeah, time to edit it. I, I I missed where it should have ended. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome to be back on. We we did a podcast some time ago, and and since then, uh, uh, Josh, Jonathan, and Jeff and I are working on a couple deals. Um, a lot going on. So excited to be back on with you guys. Oh, it's super great to have you back on. And you know the the interesting thing is that. The market has changed so much since we had you on in the spring and that um, there's a lot of pivots that are happening. We were just talking how people are having success in areas that you wouldn't think they were because they've pivoted their strategies and uh, developers, especially right now, have a, a lot of challenges. I was talking with uh, literally just a few minutes ago, talking with uh, a gentleman and uh, he was talking how developers are having to pivot their pre-sales now and push them down to almost where they're shovel ready as opposed to trying to raise the capital um before they break uh before they start doing uh the sales so they can cover the soft costs interesting how the market shifted in that that residential area but has it affected the storage center world the same way uh it, it certainly has and i think uh i think a good way to start this conversation conversation might be to kind of go through the changes we're seeing in the market right now and then uh the the changes we expect to see going into next year and by the way, whatever we expect to see is always going to be wrong, uh, right? <laughs> um, it's uh, it's never things never unfold like you think they will. You don't have um, a crystal ball? Yeah, well, somehow my my crystal ball is uh, very opaque. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we thought we thought the market was uh, was getting a little overheated in like sixteen and seventeen, just in general. Like, oh man, <laughs> for a correction, things are too good, and we could not have been uh, more wrong as as we often are. Um. <laughs> So what we're seeing right now, I think the, I'm going to sound like a, you know, I'm in the big short here to a degree, but I think that, I think the real estate fundamentals are still fairly sound. Consumer demand's pretty good. Um, you know, renter demand is good. Um, I think what's breaking right now in the system is the debt side and specifically floating rate debt. So I'll, I'll give you a couple examples here. So uh, both in self-storage, you know, multifamily, you name it. 
a lot of operators uh, a year or two ago bought very large portfolios on floating rate debt loans. And their intention was to grow NOI, grow revenue over time, and at stabilization, call it on year two, refinance into term debt. Um, they probably stressed their models up to maybe a four or four and a half. And they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to back into this interest rate and this loan amount. We're going to refinance into term after we stabilize. We're going to pull some cash proceeds out and we're going to strap in and just operate and enjoy the cash flow. Um, and to get briefly in the weeds here, and then we'll come right back out. In, in real estate finance, there's a term called a debt service coverage ratio. And that purely expresses the margin. Um, of a given property's revenue uh, over its annual mortgage payment. So a 1.25 debt service coverage ratio would mean that the property's revenue is 25% higher than the annual loan payment. So typically that loan covenant is something that lenders bake into loan documents as part of um, as part of a requirement that the borrower has to meet to remain out of default. So you can be making your mortgage payment but potentially um, technically defaulting on your loan because you've missed your coverage ratio. So all that being said, I said, we'll go in the weeds, we'll come back out and we're coming back out. So <laughs> properties are performing still and NOI is growing, but on these floating rate loans, borrowers have seen in many cases more than a 100% increase in their annual uh, interest expense or debt service. So even though you're growing that operating income, maybe maybe better than your model showed you would, your debt service is going up exponentially faster than your revenue is. So what will this all translate to? Well, you're going to have some, I think, major duress in the real estate space. We're already seeing anecdotal evidence of it. Um, you know, many times a week we're having conversations with other operators, with lenders. Um, it's not out there and obvious yet, but it's absolutely, it's here. It's not, it's not like, when will this start? It's already starting. So what's probably going to happen is these borrowers are not going to be able to refinance in this continued rising rate environment for the reasons I described earlier. Um, they can't cover the debt service. They can't get into term debt um, because term debt's now going to be pretty soon, probably at a seven. Um, what we're getting term sheets still today in the sixes, uh, which we think is you know, relatively kind of putting my blinders on a pretty good rate. But if you if you told me a year ago that you're going to say you're getting a good interest rate at a six, I would have I would have laughed at you, right? Like, oh, that's that's ridiculous. No way they're going to go that high. Well, here they are. So you're going to see major duress in the market, and you, you got you got two you got two seller types, regardless of the asset class. Again, whether it's storage, multifamily, industrial, you have one seller that will sell because it's convenient to monetize. Somebody gives me a crazy price, sure, I'll take some chips off the table and I'll sell. Well, that seller's deal today is worth a lot less from a cap rate basis than it was in January of this year, for example. So those sellers are going to be out of the market. They don't have to sell. They've got they've got runway on their debt maturity. They've got liquidity. Uh, they're going to be out of the market. The second seller type is a seller under some kind of duress. They have a liquidity issue. They have a, a loan covenant violation. Those sellers are going to have to sell because they can't refi. And they're not going to sell their properties for what they thought they would a while ago. So I think all this is going to translate to, to two things. One is going to be transaction volume is going to plummet. Transaction volume is going to go way down. We're already seeing that um, sellers don't have to sell are going to sit tight. Um, and sellers that do have to sell uh, still have their heads in the sand. Oh, this will get better. We'll get through it. Well, it's not getting better anytime real soon. Um, but even though transaction volume is going to go down, 
Um, I think the transactions that are going to trade are going to create some really interesting acquisition opportunities for those who are well positioned with the liquidity to go take advantage of that. Um, you mentioned kind of a theme earlier when we started talking, Jeff, about pivoting. And we're not necessarily pivoting our strategy. We're still building and buying value-add self-storage acquisitions where we can implement a capital improvement plan, uh, manage the revenue more effectively. Um, but we are being extraordinarily cautious in anything that we're buying right now. Um, not that we weren't being cautious before, but this is this is a, an era of you you can only buy great deals. Uh, good deals are are not enough anymore. The market's too dynamic. Uh, it's too risky. So as a result, our acquisition volume's gone down quite a bit, but we're still finding stuff that we think makes sense. But uh, 2023 is going to be a very challenging period in, in the world of real estate investing. What are some of the benchmarks that have changed for you? Um. Well, uh, let's let's talk about interest rates. Uh, that's that's a real obvious and easy one. Um, mainly, I guess, wider wider view there. Let's talk about debt, and we can talk about what we were seeing a year ago and what we're seeing today. So, the big obvious one are interest rates, right? We were we were financing deals on ten year fixed loans um, a year ago between three and a half to four uh, percent, which is historically low. That may seem kind of high relative to the residential world, uh, but in commercial, especially self-storage, I mean, that is very attractive. Um, so we were also getting leverage um, last year uh, pretty consistently about 65 to 70% of costs, depending on the deal. So fast forward to today, um, our interest rates are going up very quickly. Uh, our last term sheet, we rate locked on an acquisition in Illinois today at 6.1%. And that's, I think that's kind of a falsely low rate because our, our broker who brought us the deal has a great banker relationship. I, I bet it, it probably should be 40 bips higher, if not maybe more. Um, so that's a lot higher than three and a half or four, obviously. Um, and the second delta that we're seeing now uh, versus a year ago in the capital markets is uh, debt maturities. So we struggle to get anything more than a five-year maturity. A year ago, we were getting 10, now it's five. Sometimes we'll get a seven-year maturity with a one-time reprice on year five, but uh, finding that 10-year fixed financing is almost non-existent right now. Um, and the second thing, or third thing rather, that we're seeing that's very different from last year um, is the, uh, the proceeds that we're getting from our lenders. So if we had a reliable lender a year ago that was at 65 or 70% on cost, that same lender is now at 60 and 65 um, and inside of that, we're seeing earnout provisions where they'll advance maybe 60% at closing. And once you hit some certain, you mentioned benchmarks earlier, once you hit some certain benchmarks, whether it's, uh, you know, revenue growth or physical occupancy on a given property, they'll advance another 5% whenever that happens. So the capital markets are very dynamic right now and very complicated. And um, beyond everything I just described, Another big theme that we're seeing, uh, and bigger operators than us are doing the same thing. Most of our deals last year were financed with large national lenders like Citibank and KeyBank. Um, those are great relationships, but they are not doing what they used to do last year. They've pulled back a lot. So a lot of us have kind of returned to our regional smaller lenders. You know, the credit union out of uh, Indiana, the, uh, the regional bank out of Oklahoma City, the regional bank out of Dallas. Um, most of us right now in this industry are not doing debt with the larger players. So you've got rates going up, you've got a reduction in loan proceeds, you've got a reduction in maturity dates, 
and you've got to return to these kind of smaller um, regional bank lenders uh, as opposed to the nationals. Those are kind of the, the big themes we're seeing, um, you know, looking back a year against today. So why the regional uh, guys? Like, is it a relationship thing? They understand the area better? Yeah, they, I mean, if uh, if you if you have a large national lender and you're doing a deal in kind of a secondary or tertiary market and they haven't been there before, they're worried about the capital markets, they're worried about their balance sheet, um, they just can't get their arms around it. Uh, but the regional guys know their markets. Um, like, oh, yeah, I grew up a mile away from that storage facility. I'm going to drive up there over lunch today and look at it. Oh, yeah, I know. I know that deal. So they just kind of understand um, our business and our deals, I think, a little bit better, uh, depending on the lender. Um, so that's why, again, a lot of us have returned to uh, leveraging, so to speak, those relationships. And then, sorry, I, um, earlier when I said benchmarks, what I was talking about was on the acquisition side. What's changed for you guys? What are you looking for now in a deal that you weren't, say, even three months ago? We're stressing our models a lot harder uh, than we than we used to. I mean, we've always stressed our models, but um, we're we're really pulling back our revenue growth assumptions. Um, we're we're increasing our exit cap rate valuations when it comes time to sell. Um, and one one big thing that we're doing is we're not doing any floating rate debt, um, with the exception of our development projects. You have to do floating rate debt debt in uh, development, obviously. Um, out of our 35 property portfolio, we have three loans that are floating rate loans. And obviously those interest rates have gone up and so is our debt service, but those are layered into the context of a fund. Um, so they're balanced out by all the other deals with fixed rate debt and they're all performing. Um, so that's one thing that we're not even looking at right now is uh, floating rate debt that's completely off the table. Um, we'll take a higher interest rate uh, in exchange for term and fixing that rate. I think. Uh, I think over um, over the next five to seven years, I think, uh, which is uh, generally our loan maturity dates that we're seeing right now, I think the chances that rates are going to normalize and probably drop are pretty high. Um, I don't think this is a, obviously a perpetual situation that we're in. And um, when it's appropriate, we'll certainly refinance those. So yeah, we're just generally stressing our assumptions a lot more than we used to. So... Sorry, we're going to say something, Jonathan. Yeah, I, well, I want to take a step back for a second because at the beginning you were talking about what was happening with, with, especially operators who have a lot of floating rate debt. And I know this is not kind of your area of expertise, uh, but just for our listeners who are maybe in that situation where they've got that, and this is more on the commercial side. But what are some of the things that? Uh, what are their options? As as you say, they're not meeting their their debt coverage ratios. I mean, obviously, one option is selling. Yep. Do you what? What other options may be available to them to help with their, I'll say, short-term potential? The lenders call and saying, "You're not, you're not, uh, you're you're in default on your loan right now." Well, th there's a number of options, and before I kind of go through these, um, in, in my opinion, there is no more dangerous partner to have than a lender that's under duress. So if your lender is being scrutinized by the regulators, if they've got a Texas ratio problem or a balance sheet problem, and you trip a loan covenant, um, they're looking for any excuse to call you on it because um, they need that liquidity. They need to shore up their balance sheet. They need to become more healthy. Now, if you have a lender that's a really good relationship and they're healthy and you're tripping a covenant, 
um, depending on the relationship, you can do a loan modification, potentially, um, you can sort of do a, a pretend and extend option, which is basically that the bank looks the other way for the next year, even though you're in technical default, you're still actually making your loan payments, and they'll kind of wait for things to moderate. <clears throat> Another option, which is frankly not ideal right now, but an option is you can buy rate caps. Um, the problem with rate caps, it's you basically pay, it's like an insurance premium. Um, you buy an insurance policy that protects you against a certain rate increase up to a certain amount. The problem with rate caps right now, um, and I guess in general, is they're priced very efficiently. So if you buy a rate cap, um, I think you're a good day as you kind of break even. Um, but the problem with buying that rate cap, depending on your loan amount or your loan size, is it takes a lot of cash to go out and buy that. They're not going to finance in your rate cap. So if you have a $10 million loan, you might be looking at a, you know, whatever the number is, a $200,000 capital outlay to buy that rate cap. And once you do buy that rate cap, it's kind of a nuclear scenario where you're actually going to get some arbitrage on that additional equity investment. So you can modify with your lender, potentially, you could pretend and extend with your lender, they can kind of look the other way. Um, and if it's a value add deal, uh, and it's possible to refinance, and there's a story that you can sell to the bank on revenue growth, uh, you could potentially refinance into term debt and get a fixed rate. Um, but for the reasons I described earlier, you know, a lot of folks are making assumptions, uh, stressing their models in the fours. And now those rates are going to be in the sixes or sevens. Um, so it's a challenging environment. I've got a, a, a very good multifamily buddy. He's done really well with apartments the last five or six years. Um, he's got one floating rate loan for $100 million on a given building. And his gross dollar interest carry has increased by $2 million a year. Um, he's probably going to have to do capital calls not to make capital improvements like kitchens and bathrooms or a roof. Uh, a capital call to service debt. So it's a it's a big problem. And I think we're only seeing the beginnings of that problem being reflected in the market. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I know, especially like the multifamily space, I was hearing that you rolled back nine months ago, a year ago, there were there were a lot of groups acquiring multifamily, call it at a three, three and a half cap point. Okay. Those, those are the people who now they're in trouble, especially if they got floating on that. Yeah. You know, when you, when you talk about going in cap rates, we, we get a lot of investors that ask us, hey, what, what cap rate are you buying at? And you got to put context around it because you could buy at a very low cap rate, but with a ton of value creation, right? Maybe it's a low occupancy building, maybe revenues or rents are very far below market. But you're right. If you're, if you're buying a stabilized deal at a three and a half cap on floating rate debt, and you're trying to get it to a four and a half and sell it a three, uh, you, you got a big problem uh, for sure. So, uh, and speaking of cap rates, most of us listening probably know what they are, but to briefly visit it, uh, a cap rate is simply, um, it's a multiple of the income stream a deal produces. So the lower the cap rate, the higher the value. So as cap rates go down, because the relationship between values and cap rates is inverse, as cap rates go down, values go up. And as cap rates go up, values go down. So if you're looking at a stabilized, say 4% cap rate, a buyer cannot buy that property at a four when he's financing at a six or a seven. The math just breaks. And yeah. it's it's real math too. It's not subjective. Uh, there's no different way to interpret it. It's just, it's just math. So what's going to have to happen is a decline in values. No one can pay a four cap anymore. Cap rates have to go up because of interest rates. 
and the corresponding inverse relationship of value will have to go down. I know Jonathan's a, a economics major, so he loves this stuff, but can you explain to me why the Fed for you, the Bank of Canada for us, uh, is just continuing to raise interest rates? I know inflation got out of control, but it seems like they were super slow to start the process, and now they're just letting the train roll on. I don't understand exactly why that's happening. Well, I'm just a dumb real estate guy, um, history major. You know, I don't I don't know much about much, but I know I know enough to to talk about it for a moment. So the, the Fed, first of all, has been historically just reactionary. And not only have they been reactionary, but they've been very slow to react. So this environment that we're in right now, they're going to have to see a few things happen before they start moderating and become more dovish versus hawkish, to borrow some words from you know CNBC. Um, one of the things they're going to have to see is a reduction in job openings. Uh, or available jobs. So those numbers came out today in the States. It went the other way. Uh, there are more job openings and less. So that's not good for a story for kind of moderating. Uh, secondly, they're going to have to see an increase in the unemployment rate. Well, the unemployment rate, the last time the numbers came out, went down. So we don't have that either. Um, and the third thing they're going to have to see is a reduction in inflation. Obviously, that's the big theme right now. And the inflation numbers came out, I don't know, a few weeks ago, whenever it was, and they're still high. So um, all of those things are going in the wrong direction right now uh, uh, for 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 uh, the Fed to uh, to start kind of pulling back. So I know the headlines are a 75 bit increase. We're, we're recording this podcast on, a, on November 1st and uh, they're meeting now and I'm announcing tomorrow. And I obviously virtually guarantee you that's going to happen. And our term sheets in a month or two are going to have a seven handle instead of a six. So are are we the, um, we'll say Gen Zers of the real estate world where we haven't known, uh, I don't know how old you are, but we look around the same age where we haven't known the, uh, you know, 20, 25% uh, mortgage rates back in the late 80s where, you know, we think seven is super high. Is it just that we haven't had to go through this before that everybody's reacting or is it why is everybody freaking out right now? Well, I think people are freaking out, not not just because of interest rates, but I think the the speed in which this has changed is why everyone's so so worried. Um, I read an article yesterday about home builder sentiment in the states, and they have they have seen just a precipitous decline in uh, in buyer activity. I think uh, one home builder, their average contract cancellation rate before all this was like 10%. Now it's like 25 or 30%. So it's it's turned on a dime. So I think everyone's so concerned about this because of the speed in which things are changing. This has not been a slow, you know, moderated decline. This is, uh, frankly, it's happened so fast that we're not even seeing it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so sentiment is not good right now. I know one of my uh, mentors that I've worked with in the past, um, and and I, I guess it's a safe environment to say it here with the Trump organization, um, George Ross. George said that real estate is about a 13-year cycle, and he'd know he's lived through several of those cycles. He's in yep. his 90s now, but uh, he said it's about a 13-year cycle, and you can almost put you you can almost set your watch to it. It might be 12, it might be 14, but it's about a 13-year cycle, and we're right at the end of that. It was 2009 when everything's kind of yeah. started coming right back around. Yep. Yeah. 
And it, it is amazing to see that and be like, wow, you know what? He, a, he was right. So awesome. But if you're prepared for it, you can weather the storm very easily. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, on the properties that you're looking for uh, better cap rates now, and obviously floating rates are off the table when it comes to acquiring them. Are you looking for any kind of like specific uh, geographic locations? Like are there parts of the country that are doing better right now than um, something that's been as hot as say like a Houston or, or as cold as anything in California, it seems. Yep. Yeah. Well, th there's a deal in every cycle and in, in every town, right? There's always going to be a deal. Um, the markets that we're um, operating in right now, we have a lot of deals in the Midwest, the Southeast, and a, and a few in the kind of South and Southwest. Um, our acquisitions this year, uh, since uh, April, uh, not including our development projects, we bought a deal in Tucson, uh, a deal in Lakeland, Florida, kind of midway between Tampa and Orlando. Um, third deal in Oklahoma City. That's a market we've been studying for a while. And we bought deals four and five in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then uh, we have two deals coming up that'll kind of close out our acquisitions for the year. We have one in Illinois, north of Chicago. We have five others in Illinois. And you read about Illinois, like why are you buying in Illinois, right? Well, it's been a great market for us. Um, these deals are suburban. The fundamentals are there. there. There's not big peaks and troughs. The cash flow is great. Um, and then we're buying our, our last deal of the year will be in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And uh, we have deals all over North Carolina, kind of just in and outside of Charlotte, uh, to the west, to the north, to the northeast. Um, so yeah, generally Midwest and Southeast, there aren't really any specific markets that we absolutely won't go to. Um, not there's anything wrong with these places, but we don't love California. We don't love New York. Um, and the reasons are kind of obvious, right? They're not business friendly. Their taxes are high. The regulatory environment is, uh, is rather oppressive. Um, but go figure, right? People are moving from those states to places like Texas and Florida, uh, because it's more business friendly and, um, so we'll look at deals in those markets, but we're not, we're not targeting them as kind of uh, primary markets for acquisitions. Just, just so, looking at your, your business model. Uh, I mean, the, the storage, I, I mean, and if I'm wrong with this, please let me know, but I think of storage, it is almost, it obviously is part of real estate, but I look at, it's almost kind of, almost kind of a hedge on the real estate side as well. And I just mean that if there is an economic downturn, people selling their their larger house, they would probably use storage facilities more because, hey, I've got this furniture. I don't want to sell it. Let me keep that somewhere until I can get back into a place that's larger. Is that is that accurate or am I off on that? Yeah. First of all, I'm obviously biased here uh, as I say the things I'm going to say, but we've covered a lot of asset classes in, in, in major volume over the years. Single family residential, we've done multifamily, townhome development, retail. Um, and one of the reasons among many that we like self-storage is it's historically downside protected. And the asset class actually, some might argue, benefits during a, a time of an economic disruption. For the same reasons you just described, Jonathan, people are either losing jobs, they're getting new jobs, they're getting married, they're getting divorced, they're upsizing or downsizing their homes, they're moving to a new town. Really life changes drive demand and self-storage. And with a looming recession, um, which is kind of a foregone conclusion that we're either in one or we're gonna be in one, um, people have a lot of life changes. So we'll see how it performs relative to what's done historically during a downturn. But I think it's a defensible asset class to be when, um, kind of the wheels come off the bus 
we, we also we also like it because the, the revenue streams are so granular and they're so dynamic. So all of the leases are month to month. So we can respond real time to supply and demand changes in a given facility in a given submarket. If a, if a unit type is really full, we can raise rates with a one month notice. If a unit type is lower than we want it to be, we can drop rates below market to fill those up. Um, and we're relying on 16,000 customers uh, to pay us between 30 to 300 bucks a month. And the chances that any big piece of them are going to roll over at the same time, like let's say, let's say you're leasing a building to a big industrial user and it's one building, it's 100,000 square feet, they're paying you a ton of rent. If that user has a problem, you've got a big problem because they're your only source of revenue, they're, they're, only, you're, they're your only tenant. And it's going to take you a long time to find a new one. And it's going to uh, cost you a lot of money to find a new tenant and leasing commissions and tenant improvement allowances. But in storage, if somebody doesn't pay you, you just turn off their gate access and you auction their contents and put a new person in there who's hopefully going to pay. So we like these kind of bite-sized revenue streams and um, we think it's a defensible place to be. It's kind of a, an asset class that we look at as uh, sort of circling the wagons uh, to get ready for the storm. So I'm sorry, you just glazed over the whole auction process, but I'm addicted to watching that stuff on YouTube. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, planting of goods uh, on those, on those auction <laughs> shows. Um, they're not, they're not nearly as glamorous and exciting as, uh, as TV makes them out to be. I worked um, in the film business. I know how fake it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it still entertains you and you still watch it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. No, it's, uh, there's a couple of guys that at, uh, uh, you, to have other channels that do it once in a while and that's actually quite interesting they're, they're like regular dudes that do it so it's not the the storage wars and stuff like that but those are entertaining as heck yeah yeah um do you follow like job trends so I, I, a couple of questions about this space that I, I really never thought about like a um do you find suburban versus um like downtown core um more storage deals there or are you looking for suburban stuff i'm just trying to figure out who uses these more like is it uh, kids in condos or is it boomers in uh, single families out in the suburbs that are using them more and are you following job trends to find the markets that that would be more apt to have population density enough to carry these facilities I'll put some context around this, but I'm going to initially give you a cop-out answer. And the cop-out answer is it depends on the it market. Depends. Right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's so variable. So a couple examples. So like our, our Tucson, Arizona um, acquisition, right? The weather's nice down there. Lots of people have boats and RVs. Well, they have a pretty oppressive HOA environment in Tucson. You can't park your boat or RV on the street. So we have a ton of consumer demand for boats and RVs. In fact, half of our net rentable square footage is covered boat and RV parking and the, half, the other half is storage. Hmm. Um, other locations, um, we have, a, I would say, a, a very blue collar location in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, it's been a great facility for us. We bought it in 19. It's just performed uh, extremely well. We have a lot of customers who come and go multiple times a week to visit their stuff. They could be small business owners. They could be you know, maybe they just have an apartment and they've got some stuff they want to get to consistently. Um, the deal is about 600 units and we average like 3,500 visits per month. So a lot of people are coming and going to get to their stuff. Um, we have a few deals. We sold these uh, uh, fairly recently in Milwaukee. The weather's not great up there uh, in the wintertime, of course, and some might say the summer, but uh, we have a we have a deal up, up, the deal up there we sold. It's climate controlled. We have this kind of big U-shaped drive aisle inside. 
and you can drive right into a climate controlled environment and load and unload um, under a roof into your unit. So all of the units on this ring, not all, but a lot of them were small business owners like beverage vendors, uh, plumbers, electricians. They just keep their, their stuff in the unit. They show up in their van or their truck, they load and unload and they leave. Um, our more infill locations, uh, we still have like the multi-story climate control type locations. Those are, um, you've got business owners that use those, but uh, you know, the more dense the location is, the smaller the footprint is on, on apartment buildings, right? You got a fairly small apartment unit. You've got your mountain bikes, your skis, your golf clubs, your seasonal gear. You get a little storage unit nearby and you come and get your stuff as you need to. So our consumers kind of run the gauntlet. Um, business owners, uh, just normal people who need extra space. Uh, people that are moving. But one consistent theme that we see is the customer base is very sticky, um, meaning they stay generally a lot longer than they expect to. Uh, a guy might move into a storage unit and say, I'm going to need this for three or four months. 18 months, he's still paying his rent with a rate increase, right? So it's a it's a very it's a very sticky customer base. Um, so and that's that's good for the operator, too. Yeah, it's a, you know it's a, a fascinating space. A good friend of mine has started a company that kind of reverses the way the storage works, is the pickups and all that stuff. And um, learning more about, as you said, the granular level of it and how people actually storage is, is uh, how people store. But the fact that um, a lot of developers want to get rid of storage lockers now. A, because it gives them more parking spaces and they get higher population density in those buildings, but also because they don't know what's being stored in those units. There could be propane tanks or goodness only knows. So it just makes sense that people are transitioning more to offsite storage. Do, how do you guys deal with um, stuff that may be not safe for storage? Do you guys have to screen stuff that comes into those facilities? We, we do the best we can. Uh, you can't screen everything, but uh, in our lease, we we outline all the different types of things that are not allowed to be stored in there, like fuel tanks, propane tanks, uh, obviously drugs or weapons, uh, stuff like that. Um, but I guarantee you we've got stuff like that sitting in some of our storage units right now around the country. You just can't police it perfectly. Um, and believe it or not, one big, and you probably believe this, I guess, but one, one big problem that we have to deal with too is uh, homelessness. Um, uh, a lot of folks who don't have a place to live will rent a storage unit and uh, try to sleep in there. And God bless them, right? It's a cold night. They want they want somewhere to go. Well, that's not allowed either, uh, as you can imagine. We're not a, we're not a multifamily operator. We're a we're a storage operator. But um, that's a that's a problem too. But yeah, we have all all kinds of stories about uh, crazy stuff that we've seen. Uh, probably better than some of these reality shows we were talking about. So what, what is one of the craziest stories that you've had as, as you brought this topic up? <laughs> I yeah, was going to say well, we'll I have to talk I, about that I over I a beer. I guess I teed that up, teed that up on the fairway. <laughs> I'll, 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 do, I'll do two brief ones. One's not that crazy, but um, we bought an office building here in Denver, an owner-user office building, and we converted the second story to our office, and we converted the, the ground floor to self-storage units, lo and behold. Um, it's not really a storage deal, but... Um, it just kind of offsets our revenue or our uh, our overhead rather. So when we first open it up, we're hanging out in the in the parking lot out front. This pizza delivery guy shows up, looking confused. And he's looking around, trying to figure out where to put this pizza. We're like, "Hey, someone someone order a pizza." He's like, "Yeah, this is the address. It's unit like fifty or something." So a, a homeless dude had posted up in unit fifty or whatever the number was and ordered a pizza. Nice, uh, which indicates that he has a credit card and a cell phone, right? Um, <laughs> And the uh, the other one that happened somewhat recently is we had a guy, you know, meth addict. Uh, he stole a bunch of U-Hauls 
Um, he had a bunch of stolen goods. He took the license plates off the U-Hauls. He leased a unit here. And uh, we saw him doing some bad stuff downstairs. And we called the cops and they figured out who he was. He's got a rap sheet a mile long. And we're looking out our windows like a bunch of, you know, Garfield characters with the, the cups in someone's car watching this go down. And uh, five cops show up and they hold this guy at gunpoint in our parking lot. We're like, this is not good. And the dude reaches in his pocket and we're like, no, don't reach in your pocket. Don't do that. And he pulls uh, out a meth pipe and throws it over the fence. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't a gun. And thankfully, the cops were cool enough customers to, to not pull the trigger. Yeah. Um, but they took him down pretty, pretty aggressively uh, in handcuffs and hauled him away. So we've had a few things like that happen over the years. Well, you're dealing with people at the end of the day and people are, it takes all types. Yeah, it's a cross-section of the country, right? You've got mostly good people, and uh, you've got a, a handful of just uh, vicious criminals. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your overall feeling of the market? I understand there's a lot of apprehension here and now, but do you see opportunity in all of this turmoil? Yeah, we, we do, and the, the opportunity is not obvious yet, but uh, you know, I mentioned kind of anecdotal evidence earlier in the conversation you know, six months ago, um, if we asked for a price reduction on a deal, the seller would say, go pound sand. I've got five of their guys who want to buy it. Now, if we ask for a price reduction, they're they're considering it and oftentimes agreeing to it. Um, we're also seeing uh, a lot of marketing emails with price drops or back on market, you know, storage, same same lingo as single family, you know, as everything else, Hey, price reduction, you know, bring all offers or uh, back on market, buyer terminated because of financing. Um, we're seeing a lot more of those. And frankly, those were non-existent, you know, six, nine months ago. Um, so I, I think the, uh, the trend in a value reduction in general is happening. Uh, as we, as we talk today, those, those fire sales are not obvious. There's not as many out there yet as I think there will be, but, um, I think the opportunity will just be, uh, if you're well capitalized and conservative and reasonable, um, you'll be able to take advantage of, I think, some some pretty heavily discounted acquisition opportunities in the in the coming quarters. Um, but, it's, you know, you're catching the falling knife to a degree. Uh, it's not so much timing the market. It's just buying deals with really good downside protected fundamentals with uh, assumptions in your model that are reasonable and achievable in today's environment. One of the things I heard like years ago with real estate is really you make your money People say, obviously, you make your money when you sell it. Going, no, you actually make your money when you buy it. If you bought it the right way, then you've got an asset that has value to it. If you bought it the wrong way, you, a lot has to happen for you to to be profitable with that deal. Yep, yep. And the the wrong way of buying is not just the price you pay for it, but I think it's the assumptions that you make in your model. Um, if if you're making assumptions that uh, if everything goes perfectly, this is an okay deal. Uh, you're obviously going to have a big problem. It's yeah. I, I think part of the the challenge is people got get greedy. You know, when times are good, especially I'd say over the last nine to twelve months, the market's been very optimistic on what was happening, and people were acquiring a lot of different types of property that even a year before that were completely you know, they were off the, they were blackballed. That's the word of them, or blackballed. Um, especially like when you're looking at resorts and stuff like that, because nobody was doing that during COVID. Do you think there's going to be a period coming up where lenders don't want to lend in the storage space period? Uh, 
You know, I don't, I don't think they're going to just turn the lights out on it. Um, right now, believe it or not, storage is uh, one of the more attractive asset classes from a lender perspective, just because I know it's historically fairly downside protected. Um, I, I think the debt spigot completely turning off on self-storage, if that ever happened, would not be related to the asset class necessarily. I think it'd be more of a, a macro meltdown, uh, kind of like the liquidity crisis in 2008, right? Banks just mm -hmm. stopped lending because they were out of money and they needed, they needed government liquidity. Um, I don't see that happening, but uh, let's record another one here in six months and we can talk about how how all lenders have stopped lending on self-storage. Uh, yeah. So what do you think the real value is then obviously uh, would be the downside protection for your clients, for the people that, that come to you and want to invest with you? Um, you know, beyond the downside protection, um, we, we like, we like the, the, the mix, the asset class offers, which is of course we've hammered on this, the downside protection component, but also the reasonable quantifiable and achievable upside the asset class offers. So, um, it's very, very unlikely you're going to lose every, anything or everything for that matter. Um, and it's very likely that you're going to make a rational, attractive return over time. Um, and whether we're building something or we're buying a value at acquisition beyond not losing money, our target is always simply cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow is how you survive. Um, if you have, uh, if let's say the property value declines for whatever reason, cap rates go up, uh, market shifts, whatever it might be. If you have term on your debt, you can make your mortgage payment and you've got cash flow where you can make distributions to your investors to a degree, you don't care about what the underlying value is of the asset because you don't have to sell, you don't have to refinance. You're getting cash flow off of it and onward and upward. So we, we like cash flow. So you guys don't really care about the value of the asset going up so much as the cap rate going up. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, we we care when we're buying a deal, we're looking at a few different data points. We're looking at um, our cost per square foot relative to the market, recent transactions that have traded, we're looking at our cost per square foot relative to what it would cost to, to build a new facility. So replacement cost. Um, so we, we do care. Um, but I guess when I said we don't care about the value earlier, what I meant was, let's say we're three years into a hold period on a given deal. We're making a 10% dividend yield off cash flow. Got another seven years left on our debt. If the value of that asset goes down, number one, we may not even know because uh, we're not value it necessarily. And number two, if it does go down, we don't care that much because we're not selling anytime soon. We've got maturity and we got runway on our debt and we've got positive cash flow. Yeah, that seems like one of the safer asset classes. If I was trying to pull my money out of the, the say the stock market right now, because God only knows what's happening there, this would be a darn good place to park your would you guys almost be considered here's the thing about all right, this is a bigger conversation, but you could almost be considered fixed income in this space, no? Yeah, to a degree. Um, you, know, you know, real estate has had its downturns, obviously. It's had its challenges. But, you know, one of the reasons we like real estate, not just self-storage, is it's a hard asset. You're buying something that's quantifiable and real. You're buying the intrinsic value in the land. You're buying the intrinsic value in the building. You have tax benefits. Um, I'm not a stock guy because I'm not smart enough to understand stocks, but if a stock isn't going well, uh, all you have no control over it, right? All you can do is buy more or sell. That's all you can do. Um, if a real estate deal is not going well, you can get on an airplane uh, or get in your car and you can do something about it. You can, you can yeah. put some money into it. You can advertise more. You can lower rates. There's so many different levers you can pull 
to turn a, a deal that's underperforming into a performing asset. Um, and with equities, there's not much you can do there. So you could say it's fixed income to a degree, but uh, it's fixed income as long as the income continues coming in, right? <laughs> well, what I like about what you said there is you're getting back to real the fundamentals of, of investing, which is you're not looking, the, the problem with what's happened over really the last, call it, five, 10 years is so many people in the real estate space have been buying based in speculation, buying based on this property is going to go up in value. That's the whole reason why I'm buying it. Whereas you're really looking at, as you said, the cash flow, which is back to the fundamentals of, of the investment. And, and you know that over time, the asset will go up in value, but the cash flow will carry you in, in the short term, should there be a correction, should there be all kinds of- yeah, we, we don't underwrite, we, we underwrite appreciation in our models, but that appreciation is forced appreciation. And that forced appreciation is the result of increasing NOI, increasing revenue. What we're not doing is buying an asset and saying, okay, this will go up at a compounding 5% per year, just because the market's always going to go up. So we, we assume an increase in the valuation of the property, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't buy it. But that valuation is a result of um, quantifiable revenue increases versus just hoping that all boats will continue to float, which they're not going to. <laughs> I love some of the, uh, some of the, the sayings you've had here, catching the falling knife. That was good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. These, well, I didn't make these up. These are, these are almost cliches uh, with often they're using the States at least, but uh, yeah, in Canada, you can, you can trailblaze these sayings and uh, make it sound like they were your own. Right? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I might have to steal them. We've got some of our own too. But uh, especially where I live, it's pretty rural out here. So <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine some of the interesting uh, folk folk uh, speech that we have out here. So what do you think for the next, say, 30, 60 days, people should be thinking about if they have money in real estate and seeing how the you know, midterm elections for you guys are going to affect things? What, what's your short-term outlook on what people should be looking for? Yeah, I mean, short-term outlook is caution, extreme caution. Um, uh, don't don't bet on deals that uh, that have un. I mean, this is subjective largely, but don't bet on deals that have unreasonable underwriting assumptions. Uh, conservatism uh, is really the theme for the foreseeable future here. But as I mentioned earlier, there's a deal in every cycle and every market. Um, mm -hmm. I think the not the worst thing, but something that is unattractive to me, at least, is sitting on the sidelines and waiting for things to go down. So we, we thought about for a few weeks, uh, right when COVID kicked up, do we stop and sit on the sidelines and kind of wait for values to go down and wait for this to kind of matriculate its way through the system? Well, had we, we decided not to do that. But had we done that, we would have missed out on some enormous opportunities because the market went the other way. It had this kind of baseline going into COVID and then it went vertical after starting after a few months. Um, so I think just there, it's always a good time to be making acquisitions, I think. Um, there's never necessarily you can't time the market, right? You can't you can't time it. You can't say I'm going to wait six months and now is the time because it might fall even further. Or in that six-month period, it might start going way back up in three months. Real estate's a slower cycle than that, obviously. Um, but I just think extreme caution and diligence and understanding who you're working with. If you're investing with a with a sponsor or a fund manager, um, just just knowing that uh, they're putting your interests first and their assumptions they're making that drive your return targets are are reasonable and achievable. Jake, I love everything you've been saying today. I love the conservatism. Uh, conservatism? 
conservatism. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, but I also I, I just love the common sense approach to it. Look, you know, there's you know, there's no chicken little, but at the same time, things aren't great. Yep. And if you're smart enough going into it, not either doe eyed on one side or super skeptical on the other, it'll be OK. It'll be OK. It's you know, it is what it is. It's it's just adapting to the market. How can people find you, sir? And who are you looking for? Uh, well, we always love talking shop with real estate, about real estate with anybody. Um, we're on our third self-storage fund. We're raising capital for that. We're raising capital for some development deals here. Um, if you ever want to chat, you can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Go to our website, vanwestpartners.com, or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. I don't know if I have you on LinkedIn yet, but I will after today if I don't. Yeah, let's get that corrected. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Jake. I always appreciate talking to you. I love uh, I, I, I love being able to talk shop with somebody who, who really has a, a their their finger on the pulse in their area because we do cover a lot of different areas. You know, we had a wholesaler on here last week, which is fascinating, too. But I just love the metrics that you guys go by and how um, methodical your business is. And uh, yeah, love that, that we're working on some deals, too. <laughs> Every year we get a lot less stupid. <laughs> well, I, I hope that's what we're all doing. That's so. right. That's right. That's all. That's all we can hope for. Right? <laughs> On that note, thank you so much, Jake. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you sharing with uh, with us your outlook on what's what's going on in the market. Jonathan, as I have a cat that may possibly be on her last legs in the background. Um, Jonathan, appreciate your time and thank you for listening. We really appreciate you making it this far. Give us a like if you're listening live on Facebook. Uh, if you want to know more about what we're doing, you can certainly go to guidetothegrind.com or find us on any minute the major social and, and not social. Gosh, I'm having troubles with the cat today, guys. My head's just a little off, but uh, any of the major podcast sites, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, all of that stuff. Again, Jake, appreciate you so much. Your time is uh, super valuable. Appreciate Van West for uh, allowing us to borrow you. Jonathan, appreciate you. And thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic day and we'll see you soon.